This is a Federal News Network podcast. It might be the biggest thing in computing since the microprocessor, but quantum computing doesn't come with guaranteed security. Among the challenges, developing cryptography algorithms that resist quantum computing. Government and industry are both pursuing that goal. For a view from the industry side, the vice president for quantum adoption at IBM, Scott Crowder. Mr. Crowder, good to have you on. Thank you. Good to talk to you today. And let's start with a brief definition of quantum computing. The word is on everybody's lips, but I'm not sure everyone precisely knows what it is. Sure. Quantum information science or quantum computing uses the principles of quantum mechanics to do calculations in a completely different way than we do classically. And that information science is exciting because it scales differently than the way we've been doing calculations since we've been counting chickens on our fingers. In quantum computing, every time you add a qubit, you double the state space that you can explore. That goes up really, really quickly. You know, Once you've got a quantum computer with something on the order of 160 qubits or so, you've got a state space that's larger than the number of atoms on the planet Earth. And when you get up to qubit sizes in the 300s, you know, that state space is larger than the number of atoms in the known universe. That doesn't mean it can compute anything. It's not an all-powerful computer. But people have shown on the blackboard that it can do certain types of computation that you just would never be able to do on a classical computer. And for people that understand classical binary operations, it no longer applies, does it? That's right. So, so it's a different approach than what we do with binary math and classical computation. One of the things that people like from a popular science point of view think is that when computers just get big enough, they'll be able to solve any problem. And that's just fundamentally not true. And that's a good thing because we wouldn't have cybersecurity if that were true. We use problems that are hard for classical computers to compute in order to protect our data. And what quantum safe cryptography or post-quantum cryptography is, is something that both quantum computers and classical computers both suck at. So the challenge is that we believe that in the future, quantum computers will be good at computing the kinds of problems that we're currently using for cryptography. And quantum-safe cryptography or post-quantum cryptography is those problems that the math is hard for both quantum computers and classical computers. So the problem then or the challenge is, one, to protect current computing algorithms from quantum or to protect current computing with algorithms that are resistant to quantum, and then later to protect quantum itself from itself. Yeah, exactly. So what happened is in the in the mid-90s, a guy named Peter Shore on a blackboard proved that a future quantum computer of sufficient scale and quality and caveat, 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 would be able to do factoring and discrete log which is the math that we use for our public key encryption today that basically all of society's e-commerce works on. So I want to send you something secret. I first need to send you a key that you can unlock it, but I wrap that with a public key encryption so that nobody else can steal it. The math underlying that is either discrete log or it's factoring or things like that. And this guy, Peter Shore, proved on a blackboard that a future quantum computer could solve something that would take billions of years with a regular old computer could take days with a quantum computer. And that's the challenge. The challenge is we need to find a new cryptographic method that quantum computers can't break either, but at the same time, make sure that classical computers can't break it. 
um, because there's a lot, a lot of classical computers out there right now. Sure. Now, NIST at the Commerce Department has come out with guidelines on quantum-resistant algorithms. Is that the basis now that is what industry is working on? Because I imagine industry helped develop those. Right, exactly. IBM Research worked very closely with NIST. In fact, three of the four that NIST chose for standardization were submissions um, from IBM Research and its collaborators. The good news is that we found types of math that we believe you know, fall into that category of both classical computers and quantum computers will have a trouble breaking. And now we're at the point where we want to make sure that everything you wrap around that math um, is solid also, because you can introduce vulnerabilities from how you implement the algorithms, not just the algorithms itself. Good news is the algorithms exist. You know, people, really, really brilliant people have come up with algorithms that are cryptographically safe for quantum computers. But now we just have to make sure we put the standards in place, the wrappers around it, so it's ready to go and ready to be implemented. We're speaking with Scott Crowder. He is the vice president for quantum adoption at IBM. And how is it possible to really know since quantum computers, as they're envisioned, don't really exist despite claims that come out from time to time. Is it another guy on a blackboard figuring it out? Or how do we test these things with the current state of technology? Yeah. So I mean, I think that that, that is uh, one clear way that we can test on the quantum side, the theory, and on the classical side, which is just as important. In fact, you could argue even more important to make sure that classical computers, there's no vulnerabilities that classical computers can can find, because that's the threat today. For those, we've been hacking at this for you know, over a decade for some of the methods that are being proposed for the standards from NIST. And that's what NIST has been doing for the past, oh, it's probably been seven years now before they announced these are the algorithms that we want to standardize. And can quantum effects be simulated by classical computers just for purposes of running experiments? They can for small problems. If you have problems with qubit sizes less than 50 qubits, then yes, you can simulate it on the world's largest supercomputer. Uh, the challenge is once you get above that, then then you can't. Where we are today, to be very clear, is that the quantum systems that exist today are not large enough or low enough error rate to be practically better than classical computers. And they're even farther away from being cryptographically relevant. But we're making progress really, really quickly. And we think this decade will be the decade where they do become practical. And we need to prepare for the day when they become cryptographically relevant. Yeah, what is the challenge to getting to quantum? Is it a manufacturing issue? I mean, you need to have processors that operate in qubits like Noah's Ark. Or, yeah. I mean, what are the, what's keeping it from maturing faster? It's maturing really quickly. I mean, if you think about it, you know, we were, we put out a roadmap at the end of 2019, so um, about three years ago. We were at that point at 27 qubit systems. We now are at 433, um, and we'll be over 1,000 this year. That's one of the axes of practical that makes it better, better than classical. The second one that's really important is the error rates and the algorithms you use to mitigate errors with quantum computers. And that's another axis that we need to continue to improve on. Right now, we're at about 99.9% fidelity or 0.1% error rate in our operations. If we get a little bit better than that, then you can start doing error mitigation techniques that'll make it practical. So if you look at our roadmap out, you know, into getting to about, you know, 5,000 by the middle of this decade, qubit size, and continuing to reduce our error rates down to below three nines or above three nines fidelity, you get to a very interesting point by the middle of this decade where we think quantum computers will be practical. Sure, because if you have 
0.1 or 0.01% or 0.001% errors at the scale of many thousands of qubits, that's millions and millions of errors. So you really have to get those quite low and then have really powerful ways of of correcting for it. That's absolutely correct. That's right. So that's the big challenge in the industry right now. There are definitely hurdles that we still need to overcome. I think the exciting thing is how much progress we've made. And if we stay on the same slope we're currently on, then it starts to intercept in a couple of years, if not a little earlier than that. So then really manufacturing, programming, error rate reduction, and cybersecurity have to progress in tandem for it to become a practical reality sometime in the next decade. Yes, I would argue that the cybersecurity needs to be ahead of it. And the reason why it needs to be ahead of it is because you know, there's a concern about collect your data now and decrypt it later. And the reality in industry is that a lot of industries have platforms that need to live for long periods of time. So if you're a telco network or you're an automobile manufacturer or in the federal space, you can think of a lot of analogs to that. You've got platforms that need to be in the field for 5, 10, 20, 40 years. So you need to start thinking about how do you make them quantum safe now because they're going to be in the field when quantum computers in the future become powerful enough. And then obviously for very, very sensitive data, there's a fear of people collecting data now and then being able to decrypt later. So the cybersecurity elements of this need to lead and not lag the quantum computing roadmap. Scott Crowder is vice president for quantum adoption at IBM. Thanks so much for joining me. Oh, again, it's my pleasure. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost... uh... Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I, uh, one of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of of people with intellectual disabilities and 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 physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I, I knew that I knew that work a bit, you know, they, they basically were in d- direct care. And, and I will say, and on a, obviously we'll say about my, my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but, uh, the, the men and women that do take care of people with uh, pr- profound disabilities are, are really, um, you know, we, we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're, they're really heroes. And, um, so I was, I was drawn when I, I, and I just saw that, you know, Special Olympics was looking for someone. And I thought, well, you know, take a look at it and see, see, you know, throw, uh, send in my information. And lo and behold, I, I, I get hired. And, um, I learned, 
every day, almost something from, especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington, D.C. And, you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom, who comes by with packages and deliveries. Uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused uh has a has a good story like it can just turn a day around for you and 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 you think of i i you know so often when he'll walk away i'll be like you know whatever was bothering me or whatever is you know stressing me out and come on you know like look at look at terrell like he he, he faces everything with optimism and 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 i've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the united states and globally you see people who have had everything stacked against them you know, their parents, when they were born, were often told this is a tragedy and you should, you should, you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and kind of forget about them, Get, turn them over to the state or, or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of watch, watch your hands of it. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and, but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and, but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and, uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from, from their last competition. And they're so committed and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from a the athletes of Special Olympics that uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more, uh, we get more than we give. Uh, working with Special Olympics, it, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do, but but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That that you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so uh, joyful and and I mean, we work hard and you know, we we're up against you know the things that nonprofits are up against and you know the you know the issues of the day. But uh, man, you see, it, it, and 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 the inclusion and the at Special Olympics, no one's excluded. You know, no, right. no one's excluded. Everyone yeah. is equal at Special Olympics. It, and, you know, in a country that's quite divided on so many lines, politically and uh, socially, uh, economically, race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot. But you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved. Everyone's welcome. Everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics in experience the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get, how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved? Uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials, um, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I mentioned earlier, um, where people and, and it doesn't have to be. Uh, it's not just school age. It's it's, uh, you know, we say nine to ninety nine or uh, year old uh, folks. 
uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together, uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think, when you when you go back to the founding of, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to to create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out, uh, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website. Uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, Talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.